Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Bolino. I'm a psychotherapist, teacher, consultant, and most importantly, a wounded healer, living and working in Chicago, Illinois. On this show, I interview folks in a variety of healing professions, and we discuss the intersectional journey of healing self while caring for others. We're not just focused on individual healing, but also healing on the collective level from white supremacy, late-stage capitalism, and the patriarchy. Thanks for joining us. Hello, and welcome to today's show. So today we have an amazing, wonderful guest that I will tell you about shortly, but I also wanted to sort of give you a little personal update of some some things that I've been thinking about in light of what's happening in the world. So if you've been listening to this podcast for any time, you know that I always talk about NARM and it is my favorite therapy modality. And it's really been very instrumental and impactful in my personal and professional growth. And I've been struggling with overwhelm, with burnout, with just the capacity to tolerate everything that is happening in the world. I know I'm not alone in that. And so happy to you know, share that along with all of you. And what's been happening in my personal therapy sessions. So my therapist is great enough to let me record our therapy sessions, partially because I'm writing my book and using our therapy sessions in the book. But also it's really helpful for me to learn NARM and to stay really connected. And one of the things that's been happening as I've been reviewing our therapy sessions is Watching myself learn to tolerate the capacity for more emotion. In a NARM, we talk about it as increasing our capacity to tolerate psychobiological states. So I've just been thinking a lot about I'm a person with really deep, really intense emotions. I've been reading a little bit more about attachment too and realizing how the lack of attunement that I had, I think, with my mom really early on in life contributed to my inability to learn how to regulate my own affect, which is like the experience of these large emotions. And so it's been really cool to feel like I can be on the outside of my own therapy sessions and witness within a therapy session my ability to tolerate something that's bigger than I thought I could handle, right? So everything that's going on in the world, right? That's the big thing that I've brought to therapy lately and What I keep coming to in these therapy sessions is so much grief and so much anger. And if you've heard me talk about NARM before, those are the two emotions that were potentially thwarted earlier in life. And so the desire is for us to create space to feel the depth of those emotions that we didn't have the chance to experience before. And man, am I sad. And I'm really fucking angry. So sad and so angry. And My whole life, I think I've struggled to believe that I had the capacity to tolerate the depth and the strength of this grief and this anger. And I'm really grateful to my therapist, Kelly, for allowing me to, I mean, first of all, for working with me, she's amazing. Kelly Klinger, if anyone knows her, she's great. And grateful to her for just being with me and also grateful to have this opportunity to record the sessions to kind of go back and appreciate my own experience. That's something that has been a game changer for me in my personal growth is really truly being able to have compassion for myself, compassion 
for the pain that's caused by this deep grief and this deep anger for everything that's going on in the world, but also for the little girl who didn't get her needs met as a young child. So I don't know if that's helpful to anyone, but I figure it's always a good idea to share, uh, knowing that there might be somebody out there who resonates with this same experience. So thank you so much for being here. If you are a fan of the podcast, it would be a deep, deep honor if you would be willing to rate and review on Apple Podcast. And on Spotify now, you can also give us some stars. So if you are so inclined to do so, it would truly be a great honor for you to share your gratitude with me. All right, on to today's guest, someone who I was so excited to have on the show I've been learning from her for a while through her podcast and took a class with her, Satya Doyle Bayak. So Satya Doyle Bayak, LPC, is a psychotherapist in private practice, the director of and teacher at the Salome Institute of Jungian Studies, and the author of the forthcoming book, Quarter Life, The Search for Self in Early Adulthood. And it'll be published by Random House on July 26th. And you can get your pre-orders now. So wherever it is that you buy your books, hopefully it's not on the big A, somewhere like bookshop.org, or just walk into your local bookstore, right? But buy her book because she's got a lot of wisdom. So I hope you really enjoy my conversation with Satya doyle Bayak. Hello, Satya. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Hi, Sarah. I'm so happy to be here. I'm I'm nervous and I never get nervous for these things. And let me tell you what I was thinking about, because I was like, why am I nervous? I've listened to you enough and spent enough time in your, I don't know if you call it classroom, but your community that I'm like, she's cool. She's chill. What am I nervous about? And I think honestly, it's because I respect you so damn much. I just I respect everything you've built and what you're doing and just the integrity with which you show up in the world. And yeah, so I'm like, oh. Oh, well, I I have, I don't say this as a cliche, I have genuine tears in my eyes hearing that. Aww. So please don't be nervous. I'm so excited to connect with you. And we're just two women doing our thing in the world, you know, That's right. and, I'm, and I'm in your space now, yeah. which is an honor. So, but it means a lot. I love, I love hearing that. I am excited yeah. to hear because I've seen you in a, in the classroom space virtually. Mm-hmm. Um, but we haven't had much time to talk one-on-one. This is this is a fun opportunity for me. Yeah. Yeah. To hear more from you all around. So cool. Well, thank you. Yeah. yeah. So do you want to tell listeners just the snippet of who you are and what you do? And then we can start digging into how you got there. Sure. Yeah. So I have this thing called the Salome Institute of Jungian Studies. It is my space for teaching, lecturing, teaching and hosting other folks. It is kind of a feminist, social justice anti-racist, political, and Jungian psychology mashup. Um, it's a way of bringing this kind of soulful, relevant psychology that has been so important in my life into the world in a way that feels more modern than a lot of the spaces that I have historically tried to enter. But I'm also a psychotherapist in private practice, and I have a book coming out in a few months, which I don't think you know much about yet. No, I don't. I don't. Yeah, so we can talk about the book. That's coming out on July 26th, 2022. Pre-orders available now. 
pre-orders available now anywhere you get your books. Mm -hmm. Um, It's coming out with Random House. So it really is available anywhere. Yeah. So I'm excited to tell you about that. And I wear lots of hats, but they're all, they're all connected. So yeah. And how I got connected to you was, so I've spent a lot of time in NARM. Do you know about NARM, Neuroeffective Relational Model? I don't, not by the acronym. Now that yeah. you said it, I'm more familiar. Yeah. yeah. We have, of course, our little community and somebody had posted the Salome podcast and I saw it and then I didn't listen to it at the time. And then I went back to it. It was almost a year, I think, after you had started it and it was so serendipitous to what I was, I'd started going through ketamine treatment. And what was happening in my ketamine treatment was basically active imagination. I was dialoguing with, I think it must've been psyche. I just, I was like, are you God? It's like, I'm not God, but I'm also not, not God and all these amazing things. And so I was, I was like listening to Jung. I was like, was he doing drugs? And (laughs) it was just so... He wasn't, for the record, right. but he was tapping into the same space. That was his whole thing, right? It, yeah, yeah, it was just so incredible. The things that yeah. were coming through the Red Book, but, well, he wrote the Red Book, but the things that were coming through for him was what was coming in my ketamine sessions. And it was just like, it was so amazing and serendipitous. And I just, I had to follow you and learn more and like try to be part of the community. It's just so cool yeah. what you're putting out there. Wow, cool. Well, so I didn't know that, you know, I mean, it's funny having, as you know, having a podcast is an interesting thing. I mean, our podcast was an outgrowth of, of live online salons that we were holding, right? So the podcast came second, but having it out in the world and knowing people are listening to it all over the world is just really interesting because I don't, I don't know who's listening to it, you know, so it's cool to hear your experience around it. Yeah. Well, how did you come to Jungian psychology? Like what, what made you become a therapist? Tell, I love therapist origin stories. So tell the whole thing. Yeah, well, and wounded healer is, it's all appropriate, right? It always links back. Right? Yeah. And this comes into my book. I mean, there's, I think when I was, I want to say around 23, but I'm not sure of the exact chronology, but around 23 years old, that's sort of the flashpoint where all of my different work you know, it was coming out of. Mm. So I was 23 or so and out of college and in that space of feeling like, okay, I climbed the academic ladder and I'm not trying to get married right away. I don't plan to have babies. So what do I do now? What do I do that is satisfying to me emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, physically? And it was really a, a very long period of having no idea how to answer those questions. I mean, I, I was volunteering abroad. I was working in the United States in various places. I was applying for bigger jobs that were more interesting to me and just really feeling at a constant loss. And I mean, I tell this part of the story in my book, but, you know, I was working for a corporation, um, really it was a startup, but it was like corporate America startup mm-hmm. and basically had a meltdown after coming home from work one day. Um, and one level I was getting paid well to do kind of maverick work for my age, but at the same time it was deeply unsatisfying. So I had one of many breakdowns, but that really sort of forced me to face the fact that this wasn't sustainable. And around that whole period, I, I was going to say I'd found, but I really didn't find my mother, who it turns out is a Jungian, 
she was a therapist growing up, but, you know, deeply engaged with Jung's work, which is something I didn't have any lens into at the time. Hmm. But she sent me a book by Thomas More called Care of the Soul, which I devoured. That was a New York Times bestseller in the 90s or something. And she sent it to me and I devoured it. And then I asked her, what is this stuff? You know, and she said, you should try Carl Jung's memoir, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, which I went and got and then devoured. And it was literally one of those revelatory things of like, okay, somehow my life is tied to this. And I don't know how yet, but somehow it's tied to this. So, Mm. so that started this journey for me. Wow. Wow. And then what? So step-by-step, then what is I started... I found dream groups in Portland Mm. and a Jungian analyst and really just continued pursuing this stuff. You know, I started writing down my dreams and analyzing my dreams and reading as much as I could. And one day my Jungian analyst said to me, you know, you're miserable. (laughs) Like this isn't working. She suggested graduate school might really be something that speaks to you, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, It'll give you time in which you can kind of sort things out and get on a track. She said, what would you want to study if you could have that space? And I said, the only thing I want to study is Jungian psychology. It's literally the only thing after studying lots of stuff that I feel like is going to hold my attention. And then she named the graduate school that I ended up going to, which is called Pacifica Graduate Mm -hmm. Institute. My BFF is applying for a doctorate right now. So Is that right? Oh, that's Mm -hmm. great. Yeah. 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 So Pacifica's got lots of great people in it. I mean, it's a, it's a cool community. It's a program that's really focused on Jungian psychology, right? So in mm-hmm. mythology and that whole space. So that was really, it was a lifesaver for me, you know? Yeah. Getting a career track that really I could be creative in, I could provide for myself through and that would meet my emotional and intellectual needs as well, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Hmm. And you said that you created Salome out of essentially this yearning for the anti-racist and the feminist and anti-patriarchal lens. So like, how did you do that? Because that's like, that's not a small feat to start this big community. I mean, I'm sure it didn't start with a big, but you know, go on. Sorry. Yeah, right. I mean, everything starts smaller, right? right? I mean, it started in a living room of teaching locals and it's grown and, and I, yeah, I love it. How did it start, though? It's really very much an outgrowth of my mashup interests, right? So Mm -hmm. before I found Jungian psychology, I was an activist and doing, you know, anti-racist. Honestly, the the anti-racist stuff came before I developed a full feminist lens. Like I grew up in a feminist household, but it was so taken for granted in a way that I didn't have the same level of education around it or study around it or even curiosity around it as I did for race studies and power and oppression and and things like that. So Mm. in any case, I'd been deep into that stuff, but also really was feeling the limits of activism and the sort of feeling that there's kind of this whack-a-mole game of social justice where it's like there's a never ending number of problems and pains and sufferings. And it's so exhausting. Mm -hmm. And there's a never ending number of protests and people to write and people to save and protect and take care of and animals and planet, right? So I was really trying to sort through what the kind of roots of things were in a different way. And so again, when I found Jung's psychology 
it really spoke to me from a feminist and anti-racist perspective. Mm. But here's a white man who was extremely wealthy writing in Switzerland, you know, in 1930, 1940, 1950, before that, a little after that. And I didn't hear a lot of people talking about his work the way that I really heard it and saw it. Mm. And so there's a lot of speakers and writers in the field who I respect very, very deeply, but there's a lot that is missing the mark. Mm -hmm. And so I just kept feeling unsatisfied. And honestly, just one day was like, oh, maybe I should, maybe instead of being irritated with other people, (laughs) you know, maybe this is about, you know, yeah. It's like listening to the symptoms, like maybe I don't just need to be irritated with other people or like frustrated at the institutions that already exist, but aren't doing what I want. Mm. It was like, oh, wait, maybe I should just do what I want. Yeah. And, you know, whenever you create something, you don't know if people are going to be interested, but it's been cool to see that other people have had similar longings, you know? Yeah. And I'm guessing that some folks who are listening don't know shit about Jung. So do you want to give like the snippet? And I love I love how you talk about the 80-20 rule with him and all the jazz. Yeah. Where do you start? (laughs) Yeah. Um, I just, you know, taught an eight week class on the fundamentals of Jungian psychology. And I'm always working on the sound bites. Mm -hmm. Basically, so Carl Jung was a psychiatrist. He was in the very early days of psychiatry and is one of the founders of, I want to say psychoanalysis, but that's really more specifically Freudian, but of psychotherapy in general, of talk therapy. He was a colleague of Freud's, but much, much, much younger than Freud. And they were colleagues for four years or something, and then had a big breakup rupture. And that rupture led partially into the Red Book, which we were talking about before, which also was happening around the beginning of World War I. So there was all this deeply contemplative intellectual political stuff. I mean, war, world war that shocked the entire planet at the time. Huge ruptures were happening globally. And Jung was studying the psyche. So his psychology is a psychology that takes as fact the unconscious, the reality of psyche, the reality of the unconscious, the reality of the archetypal space. He's really the person who coined the archetypal unconscious, Mm -hmm. um, the collective unconscious. He also coined the terms extroversion and introversion. Oh, right. Because he's like the father of the MMPI, essentially, right? Or or Myers-Briggs. Yeah. So the Myers-Briggs inventory is based on Jung's typology, but is a diversion from his work. But yeah, I mean, the very terms extroversion and introversion, which are so woven into our lexicon now, um, come from Jung, as does the word synchronicity and quite a number of words that we use regularly. The lie detector test is based on Jung's work. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, it goes on and on. Yeah, wow. Yeah, but he's not known himself. And honestly, Freud did a lot less pioneering work with a lot less fundamental influence and is known much more. It's just one of those things. But so Jung's work for me is it's bottomless. I mean, it really, whether we're exploring the meaning of dreams or the basis of psychosis or the basis of sociopathy or the origins of war or really how to heal the planet, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like, there's something in there forever. It's powerful work. And I 
always found his work so spiritual. And that's something that you really bring into the spaces. That's what kept me coming back to the Red Book was this spiritual quality and the way that you talk about psyche and the the depth that's, yeah, beautiful. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because I don't think I use the word spiritual that much. Yeah. But it's because it's hard to convey what is kind of mystical, spiritual, soulful, resonant, mm-hmm. religious, luminous, like all these words, but is also really fundamentally based in psyche and psychology, not in God as an external presence, right. not in not in drugs even, right? <laughs> right? It's like, where does, what is the origin of all this stuff? And when you're taking ketamine or LSD or mushrooms, why are people having similar experiences? What are the dragons and the snakes and the gods that people are having conversations with, right? And that's like, Jung was a scientist studying like, oh, what is the religious experience that people have? What's that about versus the religion itself? Right. I think, I hope I'm not making this up, in the Red Book podcast, you talk about the overlay of his Christianity being, right, a a white male Christian and how that influenced the way that he saw everything. Yeah, hugely. I mean, he was raised, I think there were seven pastors in his family or something like that. You know, like all of his uncles, his dad. I mean, I don't remember the exact family story, but certainly his father you know, it was a deeply Christian family and a deeply Christian community and society and nation. But part of the foundations of his work is that he named distinctly that the issue with Christianity or as Christianity had evolved from a Gnostic, you know, the kind of mystical, mystical um, Jesus, mm-hmm. that the feminine was missing. Right. And this is the basis of the Red Book, again, of this journey, this sort of deeply internal journey that Jung recorded in the Red Book that we talk about in the Salome podcast, what Jung was really identifying is that Christianity is fundamentally lopsided and fundamentally problematic because there is no feminine to balance it. And so that's a pretty radical thing for a white man. And it's the dark feminine. So I talk about the 80-20 rule in, at Salome a lot. And the 80-20 rule to me is that 80% of Jung's work is mind-blowing and extraordinary and pushing the edges even now. And 20% is um, off the mark to garbage, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that you have to be discerning because, you know, this was written a long time ago and he did have a very specific perspective. But I also think it's a treasure to have a white man in history, working so hard against toxic masculinity, as we would call it now, working so hard against patriarchy, as which he named, but we understand that a little bit differently now, more politically now, right? He's and really working against racism, although I think, because he said a lot of complicated stuff around that, as he did around women, I mean, you have to parse it through, but the core of things is still a very, very deep understanding about the connection of humanity and the connection to nature that is not woo-woo nonsense, and it's not really outdated, you know? Right. Yeah, that's what's so, I mean, the spiritual, the mystical, it's so fascinating to me to think that, like, one man had access to these, like, downloads. It's almost like this foresight, this, like, future knowing that's so, yeah, mystical is the right word for it. It's profound. I was just reflecting. There's so many stories, but one short story that I was just reflecting on yesterday for a moment, because I've had a little of these, you know, some of these experiences in certain ways. 
Well, I'll, I'll say actually, this is why I was thinking about. It. I I had a client have a significant crisis recently, and we had an emergency phone call. I was exhausted that day. It was sort of a struggle for me, but I understood the level of crisis she was in, and so we had a call. Mm-hmm. And then, because I was so sort of exhausted, it wasn't until the next day that I realized. I'd had a dream with her two days prior that was weird. It had stuck with me. In fact, I, I only later realized I'd really been thinking about her for a couple of days and realized that the dream prefigured the crisis that she was having in quite literal terms. And it was funny because, again, when we were speaking, I hadn't fully put that together. It sort of shocked me a little bit. And I just remembered the story that Jung had, Jung's secretary had told in which he walked in one day to the office and said, create an appointment for Mrs. So-and-so. She'll be calling soon. And so his secretary made an appointment for Mrs. So-and-so and she called that day or the next day or something. And, <laughs> and his secretary said, oh yeah, I've already got an appointment for you on Thursday. At da, da, da. And she says, well, what do you mean you already have an appointment for me? She said, well, Jung walked in this morning and told me to make, she said, but I just called you. <laughs> you know. And it turns out that Jung had had a dream that was very specific that he just understood to be a precognitive dream and that she was, yeah, they were sort of psychically connecting and she was going to be calling. So that's cool. Yeah. So it's that kind of stuff that it's just taken as fact versus again, seen as woo woo nonsense. It's just like we have access to certain knowledge that we need to stop pretending like we don't have access to. That's exactly. I was just thinking we all have access to this. It's just the conditioning and all of the other things in the outside world that have told us that that's not true, going to the patriarchy, right? That only fact and, and measurable scientific things can be true. Totally. The white supremacist patriarchy, right? right? It's like all of these different things interwoven that have a fundamentally toxic nature towards the feminine or indigenous knowledge or, yeah, I mean, it's, it's shocking how conditioned we can become, even though we know in our bones it's not true, yeah. right? you know, I know in my bones that animals have feelings. It's not complicated or confusing, right? But the amount of conditioning we are given to suggest otherwise is just insane. You know, it goes on and on. So mm-hmm. yeah, to come back to what we know. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit more about the book. The book. Okay. So the book is called Quarter Life, The Search for Self in Early Adulthood. And the book is... It's another aspect of the work that I needed, but couldn't find anywhere, right? So Salome meets a lot of, sort of was my solution in a way to the things I've already shared. And this book, Quarter Life, The Search for Self in Early Adulthood was the book that I really needed because when I was 23 and also for my clients, so almost all of my clinical work is really focused on people in their 20s and early 30s, although my clients have aged out of that in many respects and we keep working together. So (laughs) Yeah. But it's about bringing Jungian psychology or depth, D-E-P-T-H, depth psychology to a younger population. Because when I was 23 and for many years, most of my life since then, I was not really seen as somebody who should be, quote unquote, having a crisis. Because the whole Jungian world speaks about the midlife crisis. And Jung spoke about the crisis in the, quote unquote, second half of life. Mm. and. In his developmental psychology, the first half of life, which he's defined as between childhood and the second half of life. So it's it's really what I call quarter life. It's somewhere between adolescence and midlife. 
Jung really viewed that period as being a kind of, you know, get out there, get to the world, figure it out, make some money, find a partner, root down. It was a period of ego building and ego development. And he felt at the time that it was really dangerous in a way for people too early to be doing soul work because they would dissociate the world. Hmm. And it makes sense. I mean, I think it's a very logical conclusion, but I also think that increasingly without religious centers, without strong family units, with high levels of trauma, with climate change globally, it's very, very difficult for many people to get out there and get your shit together, right? And just do it. And all this stuff that we're told, even some of the best selling books in the same space are kind of like, just do it, just figure it out, you know? And yeah. and most people just, I mean, I don't know if it's most, but huge numbers of people can't do that. And so there's an enormous amount of anguish and feeling lost and feeling adrift and scared and high anxiety, high depression, high rates of suicide. Yep. So if we're actually going to tackle those issues, how do we do that from a soul perspective? If the primary soul psychology, Jungian psychology has this absurd dogma that it's maintaining of midlife or second half of life. And if the rest of kind of medical psychology or CBT, whatever, is really not offering the search for meaning. Right, right. So there's a huge vacuum. So I don't know that my book is going to fill that vacuum, but it's an attempt to get in there and say, hey, there's another way to explore this. Mm. Well, since you mentioned CBT and I was just composing something today to maybe do a little video on like the gig economy apps, like BetterHelp and Talkspace and that like, how are you conceptualizing? Because the field has to change, right? We have to respond to the changing desires, I guess, of of young people, right? And the people who are going to be seeking therapy later. I don't know what the answer is. How are you holding it? How are you conceptualizing what's changing? Well, I mostly don't pay attention to it, honestly. It's like part of my survival mechanism to just so deeply do my own thing that (laughs) for better or worse. But I will say that in conceptualizing better help and those offerings that are out there, I know people who have found their perfect therapist through those, Mm -hmm. you know, um, I mean, I, I think it's it's still about the fit more than anything. Yes. And since all of us are online now, it's a little bit, it's like, well, it makes sense. <laughs> you know, like all of my therapy is happening virtually. So I don't know. I don't know enough about it to speak to it, but I'm also not throwing it out mm-hmm. wholesale. You know, I, I think people need help and, and the entire field of mental health is struggling to keep up with. I know. The epidemic of need, you know, we're also not doing it there's a lot of ways we're not doing it well. And part of that is because the field of mental health is mostly independent practitioners. We're not huge corporate entities. So it's really hard to meet certain needs unless corporate entities fill the space, unfortunately, or huge lobbying firms or something. But mm-hmm. Right. And then they'll fuck it up. So, <laughs> right. It's really complicated. It's painfully, painfully complicated. Yeah. I know. Right. Yeah. That's, I, I can't, like, I can't, I just, keep saying I can't. I can't even imagine what we could create that would be accessible, affordable, right? Because even if we had uh, socialized healthcare, I've heard from friends either in the UK or in Canada that it doesn't cover therapy. So it's like the same boat. So I just can't even uh, imagine it. 
Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to take a revolution all around. Yeah. I mean, even when insurance companies cover therapy, it needs to be medical, right? You need to have a really certifiable medical problem. And again, then we're not talking about the search for meaning. So right. religion has either disappeared or turned political or corporate or sort of mass dogma, movements of dogma. And there's very, very few places where you're going to get deep, genuine religious engagement. Mm-hmm. So where do people go in their search for meaning? You know, And I would argue that religion, while being hugely supportive in its most genuine form, is still not, it's not psychological in the end, because as much as I love Buddha, I don't want to live the answer that Buddha found. I want to live my own answer. Mm. What is each of our actual fundamental journeys? I think that's what Jesus was telling us to do. That's what Buddha was telling us to do. So that's, and that's what I find in Jung's work, which is a deep prescription to sort out your own existence as hard as that is. Um, and essentially that that's the pursuit, that's the pursuit. And most psychologies aren't answering that call. They're answering calls of symptom management and things like that. But at the end of the day, you're still asking questions. We're all still searching. Right. Well, and the the human desire to not feel pain, right? I think that's the the answer, you know, CBT is trying to give is, okay, here's how you alleviate these anxiety symptoms. But you're right, the what's driving the symptoms is this question of, why am I here? Who am I? What does this all mean? Right. Or it's too much coffee and a, you know, medical imbalance or something. I mean, but, but at the end of the day, to me, it's like, you go to a doctor with a rash and they say to use this cortisone. It's like, oh, thank you. Like the cortisone might really help. But if you have leukemia or you have a skin condition or you have, you know, it's like the cortisone is really not the answer. And so with CBT, I think Mm -hmm. there are many ways that it can be tremendously valuable for people. But generally speaking, it's not uprooting the issue. It's just providing short term support. For managing it. Well, and, you know, I think about because I used to work in uh, IOP and PHP and thinking about, you know, people in early recovery who need these like life skills that CBT and DBT can really teach. But we don't have a fucking world where it's like that people can function and be okay and really be connected. And uh, again, it's just back to like system change. Well, or or again, really healing trauma instead of the management of symptoms that are manifesting from trauma, you know? So, yeah, I mean, it's really tricky. And and I, I have, I think, grown in my practice, the more that I'm, I mean, this is an awkward thing to say, the more that I'm a public figure, the more you realize that I think everyone really is doing their best, you know? So yes, I don't know, right. you know, I don't have enough experience with CBT or DBT they're not my jam particularly, but I think they have genuinely helped mm-hmm. a lot of people and they come out of other people's right. answers for what they need, right. you know? So I try to walk gently in that space and just honor that, like, who knows? But it's not my jam. I really think at the end of the day, trauma healing and soul work. Right. I know. I, I just, I have a hard time, like, just being in spaces with people who don't want to do that soul work. And I get it. Like, in this lifetime, that might not be for everybody, but I'm glad that you create spaces and that we can have conversations where that's the main focus. Well, and you too, right? 
I mean, you created this podcast. I think that's it. It's like, oh, right. I don't need to be, I mean, if I can get out of this space that's driving me nuts and create a different one, then not only am I solving my problem, but I'm hopefully offering something to others who are craving the thing, you know? So that's it. I mean, mm-hmm. I, it's just not my world anymore. I mean, for me, psychology, it's just, I just live in a completely different space than where most of those things are taking place. And there's so so many patients in need and so many lapses in being able to meet those needs. It's one of those things I just have to compartmentalize. I can't think about it because it's endless. I mean, it's endless. That sounds really healthy. (laughs) Really, Because we were talking about uh, social media and you were like, yeah, I don't really do it. And I'm like, yeah, don't because it's it's a trap. (laughs) And once you start, it's hard to stop. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, you know, this is a conversation I'm having with folks a lot because I have a book coming out and it's like, well, obviously you should be doing that on social media and how many followers do you have and all that. It's like, well, I have a fucking robust online community. Back off. Right. Well, that's it. I mean, look, I have a robust online community with no social media, so that's cool. But but at the end of the day, it's like we know social media is generally not good for people's mental health. So I don't think... I don't know. It's just tricky. How do we model what we want to be doing in the world and participating in systems we know aren't healthy? But my relationship to social media is probably going to have to change pretty soon. We'll see. It's something I resist for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what Enneagram you are? I don't. It has changed, I think. So. Okay. All right. And also, I hesitate to type myself publicly because people project so much onto that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know. There's types everyone hates and all that kind of stuff. So what what are you thinking? Tell me. I was just feeling a lot of four vibes with the like uniqueness sort of like, I'm going to do my own thing. Uh-huh. I'm a unique. I got this. Like, yeah. <laughs> do you, is Enneagram something you do a lot of work with? I just, it's something that fascinates me. And I, I'm very much a three and three. I do the ambiwing thing, but lately it's been more of a four. So uh-huh, I think cool. that's why I feel that yeah. vibe. Cool. Yeah, I love all that stuff. Yeah. And I do find like it's kind of something to keep close to your chest for me, just because like when you share your astrology or whatever, I find people just start to load on interpretations, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, this is part of like doing more interviews of like, what do I share and <laughs> not share? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and as you said, you know, the more you're in the public, I mean, I've certainly found this too, that I, I sometimes I'll just say things off the cuff because I'm just very like, whatever comes out my mouth comes, I do, I do actually think actually, but, and then later I'll go back and I'll be like, oh, that sounded very demonstrative. And that is not at all how I meant it. And God only knows. And, And I've had also had experiences where people will talk to me in person and then be very disappointed that I'm not as entertaining (laughs) when we're one-on-one as I am, like, you know, when you listen to me in an interview. So it's, it's such a fascinating, weird world we live in when, like, I'm sure you're not like, I was going for celebrity. I was going for, you know, being out there, right? That's not what I was doing either. I just wanted to do something cool in the world and speak to the people who think like me. Yeah, totally. Yeah, but I, I think it's such good lessons for all of us, too, of like how, I mean, there's something Mitch McConnell said recently, and I'm, I'm no Mitch McConnell defender, to be clear, but, you know, everyone freaked out on him, da, 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 and then I listened to the larger clip, and I had a moment, where I was like, I gotta say, I think, I think this is actually truly being taken out of context, you know, 
it's really, it's just such a tricky time of way, the way sound bites happen. I mean, I'm just going to, this, what I'm saying has been said 10,000 times, right? But yeah, it is remarkable then when we experience that of like, that is so not what I meant, right? you know, or that's so not the way the rest of that, you know, the context of that conversation unfolded. It's, it's really tricky. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm always hoping if we can be really honest with ourselves, if we can be truthful, see ourselves as clearly as possible, then we have more of a space to see others or at least give them the grace if we see something that we don't like. I've really been feeling that. I feel like I'm in this middle space where there are some people that see me as an authority figure and then I'm, you know, looking at authority figures who've disappointed me and feeling into that like there is there is no black and white. They're not terrible. I'm not terrible. They're not great. I'm not great. How do we exist in this like nebulous weird space? For sure. I mean, that, you know, again, that's kind of a core principle of Jung's psychology is just Mm. what we see in the world is ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And that was, I mean, just to use an example I've already spoken to of this sort of, if I'm irritated with this Jungian organization for not doing X, Y, and Z, maybe that's really more an indication of me wanting to do X, Y, and Z, right? Mm -hmm. But it's really so real of how we can judge other people and in remarkable specificity, what's really going on is our own self-judgment, right. you know, or our own, our envy of what we want to be creating in the world that somebody else has or has done or something. Projection is an extraordinary tool for, when we look into projection, we often speak about it as like, if you're mad at somebody or you hate somebody, what do you really hate about yourself? <laughs> kind of like it can become a really negative interpretation. I think projection can be just such an extraordinary tool for learning about who we want to be in the world too. And um, little, little learnings along the way. Absolutely. And that's all, you know, that's all courted to to Jung's work of seeing the unconscious manifest externally. Mm. Well, I'm curious your answer to the healer question. Would you consider yourself a healer in the work you do? I would never call myself a healer. (laughs) Personally, I would never call myself a healer, but I think I do see myself in the healing space, you know, and doing healing work. Mm-hmm. And I certainly hope I'm doing healing work, but I don't, I don't use that word myself. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your experience with that word. Well, it's probably been about 200 times that I've asked this question now. And so the consensus, if I were to like do a qualitative study on it, the consensus is that most people don't want to be associated with the negative aspects of the word or the projections of the word where there's this assumption that they are doing something to someone else. Uh And so most people who do identify with it will say, I am a helper. I am a conduit. I am a vessel and I am healing with Uh and not doing to. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I very much did not want to become a therapist to be a helper or a healer is the irony. Mm. I wanted to become a therapist because I was endlessly intrigued with Jungian psychology. And being a therapist was a trade that I could do in order to stay in this space and make money. And yeah, the result is I really love, I love being a therapist. I love doing clinical work and I love being engaged in people's stories and lives and journeys, and transformation of existence. And, mm-hmm. and I guess, I mean, I certainly, again, I think of other therapists as being healers along with all the other kinds of healers. Right. 
But I think there's a lot more to it, you know, and, and any one, one of those words is, I don't know. It's like, there's so much going on, right? Well, there's also something I find that you create in your space. Because when you're talking about archetype, I remember, I think, I don't know if it was day one of the class, but you were basically like, as soon as we start talking about an archetype, it no longer is the archetype, right? So there are it's almost like spaces between words. It's energetic stuff that's beyond language that we can only feel if we've tuned into that vibration and that, right? Like it's. Well, I think that's right. I think that that's, I mean, you're definitely tapping into where this probably comes from in my psyche, which is just, there's something so limiting about any noun. Right. You yes. know, yeah. where I think if somebody identifies too strongly with being a helper, they end up becoming a herder. Yes. Ironic. Yes. Because mm-hmm. psyche's always seeking balance. And somebody identifies too much as a man of God and woo, boom, turns out he ain't a man of God, right? Mm-hmm. That's the sort of danger of ego identification, I think. So I'm just a little wary of that. But that's also not, you know, <laughs> the, the absurd thing. One of my very favorite T-shirts I ever saw was um, was an, a picture of an alien that said, take me to your healers. Oh, that's so <laughs> you <know>. Portlandia. <laughs> so Portland, I know. But, you know, it plays off the, you know, take me to your leaders, right? It's like an anti-patriarchy approach to that of like, yeah, I don't want your leaders. Like, bring me your healers. And I, I love that. I mean, I definitely love that space. You know, it's juicy and sweet. And gosh, I wish... We had fewer police officers in jails and more healers. My God. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So in that sense, I'm in that space. I hope to be in that space. You know, That's a very long answer, Sarah. Oh, I love it. That's great. All of it. And uh, how about wounded healer? How do you feel about that? Yeah. I mean, ironically, I probably identify even, I identify more with wounded healer in the sense that as we were talking about, most of my work comes out of my wounds and longings my disorientation, my traumas, my real honoring that I think for me, the term wounded healer is, is more of an alchemical term, right? It's, Ooh, say more. Well, it's, <laughs> it's the lemonade from the lemons, right? It's this, it's like the wounded healer says, yeah, I am hurt. And therefore I have sought to heal or from my wounds, I have learned how to heal others. Or so there's a sense of that transformative and also, um, self-oriented helping versus other-oriented helping. Yeah. So in NARM, they talk about unmanaged empathy, which is what you're talking about, right? This like compulsive martyry. And and it's it's funny because if someone would have just said that to me before I went through NARM, I would have been like, no, I'm that's not me. But when you get down to the cellular level of probably more of a like psyche sort of level and realize that, oh shit, I am, I am expecting my clients to heal so that I can feel competent in what I do. And who isn't going to, I mean, who isn't going to fall into that trap, but, but to really have a a deeper level of awareness of that is so crucial. Yeah. And I guess I wouldn't, most of the people I work with, I guess I didn't, I wouldn't know what healing, (laughs) it's a terrible thing for a therapist to say, I wouldn't know what healing looks like. I mean, to me, it's endless, right? Yeah. It's absolutely endless. Exactly. It's like we can hit milestones and we can mature and we can be suffering less, hopefully. Right. But life goes on and the challenges go on and the crises will show up in different forms and relationships will change and new jobs. And so again, it's just more complicated, I guess, for me. But the term wounded healer encompasses a lot. Yeah. 
I'm curious how like how long is your longest patient that has stuck with you? <laughs> oh, my whole practice. I mean, I wouldn't. I mean, I don't know. The truth is, I haven't sort of cataloged this, but I I think I have clients who have been with me many years. Yeah. Yeah. And I love long-term work with clients. I love long-term work. The insurance companies don't love it so much again. Yeah. Oh, you take insurance. I take insurance less and less. (laughs) She's like, I have really, because I work with a younger population, I am a person who had a full cash practice and then was convinced by a client to take insurance, which is to say, like, I really value the importance of having therapy be equitable. You know, I deeply value that. And so it's been something I've maintained, but insurance companies, they are not there to help therapists themselves or the bottom line of therapy. It's, it is a tricky, tricky relationship. So. Right. Right. Yeah. It's been interesting as I've now, let's see, 2014 when I started my practice. So what is this year eight? Right. And yeah, and and having relationships for that long, like that's that's not what I was trained to do in school. So I've been sort of making it up as I go along. And but yeah, I, I love when there's a client that can can really meet that bottomless curiosity. Well, that's it. I think of myself then in that role as I am walking the journey with them. I mean, there's no not cheesy way to say this stuff, but like right, right. And there's no not awkward word to use. But I really feel more like a companion with really specific boundaries. I mean, we're not, it's not a friendship. Right. And I'm not their teacher and I'm not their priest. You know, I'm not their mother. It's a very specific thing to be a psychotherapist with very specific rules and times and all that kind of stuff. But to be witnessing and co-witnessing and co-participating in somebody's choices and journey, it's it's huge. Um, right. And I know when I've had killer therapists, like it's hard to let that go and, you know, and want a journey on your own. So, but to that point, I think it's also important to be, you know, watching for codependency and watching for the attachment issues that aren't fully healing, that are making it hard for clients to move on. I mean, there's, I bring that up periodically with my longer term clients, but noticing because I work with younger patients often too. It's really trying to honor that there really is something developmental that I need to continue playing a role for until that's done. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, that's so awesome. Likewise. I mean, you're in the same boat. Thanks. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's interesting how my career's changed over the years working with addiction and now I'm doing more trauma and. Yeah. What's your primary trauma lens? What what do you or or tool? What do you like the most? NARM, the neuroaffective relational model, and it's you know the way that you talk about Jung and uh, objectivity, objectification. There's I think there's so much that marries, and I I think I had said in my feedback form of the unconscious class, which I haven't seen by the way, so you know. Oh, it's okay. No. Okay, just so you know, if there's anything <laughs> that I should have seen. No, no, no. Well, what I was just going to tell you is it's a different language. And it's funny. I feel like I felt like your class about the way I feel like astrology. I understand it going in, but I could not regurgitate it to you. (laughs) And so it was like, I'm learning a new language. I'm starting to have wheels turning a little bit differently, but also it's saying the same thing that my psyche already knows and my soul knows and has met. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And that's really it. It's like, I mean, that's how I, 
when I came upon this work of feeling seen by work, it sounds like when you saw NARM, when I finally read other clinicians writing about trauma, it was like, thank God, I felt weird, even if it took me a long time to really understand some of the components of it. I mean, I'm still learning. Yeah. Yeah, it's powerful. Yeah. Well, the hour's almost up. I could talk to you forever, but I want to respect your time. Anything else you want to share with folks to leave people with today? Man, I don't know. I mean, this is this went fast. It's super, it's lovely to connect with you. Yeah. You know, I didn't come here with any agenda or anything. It was just fun to connect. So is there anything else on your end that you had hoped we might get into that we didn't in our time? I mean, I would have had you work a dream of mine. So maybe we'll have you come back. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll just tell you the quick story, yeah. though, about yeah. it is that after the because you did a, a fundraiser for Ukraine and you read Diagnosing the Dictators, which was a, a an interview of Young. And my this is a fucked up way to end the podcast, but here we are. My dad was a fan of Hitler. Oh, and yeah, yes, a whole unfortunate thing around that. And so it was the way that I was listening to it was trying to understand my dad's psychology a little bit more about like, how could you how like, how could you be a person that was interested in this like evil? And then that night I had a dream where I was supposed to have gotten my dad a gift. And my brother says, oh, why don't we just go to his house and find one of his things that he's forgotten that he has? And one of the things that I found was a a Barbie that was an Indian, quote unquote, Native American, like dark skin, had a headdress, like the whole stereotypical thing. And I remember thinking, I'm going to sell this on eBay and then give the money to a tribe somewhere to do some sort of like reparations. Mm. And I was like, Jesus Christ, if that is not like so blatantly like a representation of what happened. Yeah. It was just so fascinating. It was a doll of your father's. Yeah. Interesting. It was like a, um, and he's, he's been dead for eight years now actually, but it was a, uh, an older, like something maybe when he was a child that was like in a plastic bag that was, yeah. Kept under a bunch of stuff. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So next time. Well, it's also a shadow figure. I mean, it's powerful. A doll, a dark skinned doll of your father's that was kept in a plastic bag under a bunch of stuff. I mean, that's the thing for me. This when we look at things psychologically in this way to really witness, well, what what was it with your father? So that it goes beyond the shame or the anger or the grief right. or the, you know, all those things and to really be curious about it. And that dream is powerful. Yeah. It's a powerful dream. I will say the last thing. Oh, I know when you express that. Have you heard of this book that just came out recently called Ancestor Trouble? Have you read the book Ancestor Trouble by Maud Newton? No, but I will. That just came out recently. Okay, so this book, I have been meaning to read it. But the reason I ask is because um, it's about a woman whose father was a deep white supremacist and like really believed slavery was a valuable asset to everyone. And she ended up really going deep into facing that history instead of burying it, of really looking into what was her lineage in the most deep, complex way and unearthing. I mean, for me, it's it's similar work. I mean, it's like the depth psychology, right. anti-racist, like she's doing it through lineage, but she's going into the family unconscious. She's really digging things out kind of like that you know, doll you, you found under your dad's stuff. Wow. Like, it's really curious, you know, it's really curious stuff. So you might, I mean, that book just came out, but as you're sharing about your father, it's like powerful modeling of how, what can we do with these histories? You know, it's curious. Mm. 
That is a gift you have given me today. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing that. It's powerful. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for doing this, Sarah. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. I am just, yeah, I'm still so excited. I've had this conversation and, and I, I will continue to be part of your community and keep Great. learning and stay Great. connected. Yeah. We're, we're going to do this dream seminar coming up soon. You know, that starts, when is it starting? May 5th, I think we have it on the calendar for, but I'm looking forward to that. I don't think we had really enough time for dream work. I'm always compelled by what, mm-hmm. just what's possible, you know, what's kind of endless, the endless fountain once we get in there. So I'm looking forward to starting that too. So thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Good to see you. You too. Thank you so much to Satya for being a wonderful guest today. To learn more about Satya and her work, you can visit us at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. Thanks to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for our album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.